Hello and welcome to Lost in the Story. I'm your host, Wesley Marshall. My guest today is an actor, improviser, and director. You'll know her from the podcast Sci-Fi 5, a daily show that delivers five minutes of science fiction history on the Roddenberry Podcast Network. In addition to streaming games on her own channel, Jessica Nerdy, she is also the creator, director, and the star of Heartbeats, a completely improvised medical drama performed on Ripley's Improv's Twitch. Please welcome to the show, Jessica Lynn Verdi. So my question to you, uh, Jess, is what to you makes a great story? What to me makes a great story? I, I was tempted to just turn that question around and ask you what makes you a great story to you. Um, no, okay, okay, I'm the, I'm the guest, I'll answer. I think a great story includes honesty, relatability, and timeless themes, usually. And then then there's the whole aspect of how is that story told and if it's engaging or not. That's like sort of like two sides of it. Is it being shared well? It's basically a good story is have you learned something? Have you walked away? Did you learn something? And so for you, does character or story matter more? So if someone were to just tell you a story about, well, I guess every single, okay, is there a story that exists that does, isn't anecdotal in some way? Like not anecdotal would mean like, I know, like I've been through this in my life and da da da. But like, is there a story that can happen that doesn't involve a human character or an anthropomorphized animal or something or other? So I'm trying to think like, is character like absolutely integral to storytelling. I'm asking a ph philosophical crazy question right now. So like, I'm trying to think. So this is more of a, okay, if a tree falls in the, in the forest and no one's there to hear, it doesn't make a sound. That's not a story, right? That's, but that's mm -hmm. something to think. Every single story one can think of, it involves this guy went to the store, he bought this, or I bought this, da, 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 right? So when you are consuming media, do you consume it for the story or for the character? Character, probably. Ah, uh, mm, this is a really hard question. I don't know how to answer that. I, here's what I will say. I was a passive enjoyer of TV, film, cartoons, songs, etc., until I started understanding the structure and way to write story or create story or that I actually am a storyteller. And then I started like breaking apart like the cogs and the wheels of how to make a story. Does that make sense? Yeah. So all that being said, learning as an improviser how to create a, a story. So the kind of improvising I do is um, improvised genre and narrative. So we, we our goal is to write a full story within an hour. We're not doing short form. We're doing full story. So you learn, you train in character, you train in emotion, you train in storytelling, you train in structure, you train in all these elements that go into telling a story of that nature or, you know, that size. So... I'm an educated storyteller, and my point in mentioning that is I still couldn't tell you why I watch Grey's Anatomy every day or why Bridgerton has, you know, captivated me. I'm sure, like, so probably watch Grey's Anatomy because I love the characters. I'm sure that's a, a big element of it. But then, big spoiler from seven years ago, Derek Shepard dies, and he was my, like, that love story was huge. And he's gone, and I can oh, still watch oh, no. the TV show. I know. I'm sorry. It was spoiled for me on TV or on internet. So you, it's okay. You can deal with it. Okay. Are you sure? I mean, at least your audience can. You might not be. We can talk about it though. I, I still have feelings. Thank you. But she was even like, you guys, if you can't deal with the fact that 
this guy died, then you're not you you're watching the show for the wrong reason. She's like, it's what, it, so like of course that obviously the death of her husband informs that character, yada yada yada. But I don't know that you have seventeen seasons of a series if the character isn't as engaging. Is it and really interesting. up to seventeen seasons at this point? Yeah, it's insane. It's insane, and good. You know, it. it I think it lost some of its raw charm. To the point where they can have like two characters pregnant at the same time and it still feels original. <laughs> like they are almost recycling stories at this point. So I think that's an interesting point. Like there is not a character that will survive on a TV show that we cannot put ourselves in the shoes of at least if we understood their circumstance, right? Mm-hmm. Like we need to be able to relate to that character. Even if you hate Regina, what's her face from... The, the Mean Girls movie. Yeah. But, you know, you still relate to that girl a little bit, but she does get hit by a bus. I don't <laughs> know if that's a good example. Spoiler. So, so in I'm, I'm actually curious because I, I'm I'm familiar with, with some of the improv stuff you, you've done from watching other people who are in your cast and other streaming shows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When it when it comes to, like, prepping, like, for, you know, you, you, have the, you did the Star Trek one, you're doing the medical drama one. Do you have, like, do you make your characters... And then is it like literally you're like, okay, we're going to set up what the issue is at the very beginning of the episode. Like you, you figure out what the structure of an episode of that show is. And then you go, okay, so we know the sort of points we have to hit, but we don't know what they are. We have zero clue what they are. We have zero clue. You just Uh, know the structure uh, of the genre. Usually. Yeah. That's, that would be, it's amazing too, though. If you were, if I, if you and I were on stage right now or someone Mm -hmm. say, Hey, go improvise um, a, a Disney movie. We could do that without training because we kind of know the feel of like the because we ingest so much media, we have it in our bones to tell that story. Mm. Also, there's an argument to be made that since storytelling is such a human tradition, that might be the first thing we've ever done. To, like that that gets passed down with a consciousness. It 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 is like instinctually in us. It's in our DNA to tell story. So. I'm just trying to say that it's like not not so highbrow. Like, look at how good we are. We know this. But there is, if I, if we're doing the medical drama, I've created a whole structure. Like, well, now there's a climax that should happen. Now there's um, a reveal that should happen. And it's def- it definitely isn't as like down to the wire like that because we won't surprise ourselves if we're waiting for the reveal. Because mm-hmm. our, our climax could be someone's about to die or they're about to kiss or... We, and I, if I put restrictions on it has to be this moment that for me, we've lost the spark. But that doesn't that's not true for all like mumblecore films or whatever. They all have vague outlines. They know where they're heading. Essentially, you can train in a structure and get the suggestion and you're free to go. I, like to the, So here's a good example for Heartbeats, the medical drama. The character, I, I created the genre or had the idea for the genre and the show three or four years ago. And I had... Obviously, she's like a prototype. She's similar to Grey's, Grey, uh, Grey, Ellen Pompeo's character in Grey's Anatomy. Obviously, the way I would play it, the way I want to tell that story, what she's going through. Because in fairness, the show is not a, a parody. It's its own medical drama that just happens to be improvised. Something caused a rift between my father, who was a cardiologist at the hospital that my character is now working at. I have no idea what that rift was. I just know that that is what happened. That was an inciting incident for our two characters not to talk. Mm-hmm. We haven't even met that character. He's technically dead in the ship. So 
unless I find a way to go back in time or if someone needles me as a character to find out what's going on, you know, in the show, I, I'm not going to write that. I can't write that. But it is still somehow informing my character that my dad fucked up or I did and we're not we didn't talk and he died without us being resolved, our relationship being mm-hmm. resolved. So does that answer the question? Kind yeah, it, of? It, it, it does. Cause I, I was just curious how you sort of you, you put together that and just get it on its feet based on the, the structure. And I, I, you, you answered that question for sure. Yeah. And, and I will say, too. And since I'm directing this show, I'm directing this show too. A big element is understanding that we all work a little bit differently. And mm-hmm. for me, I work way better on impulses and not getting in my own way of those impulses. Other people um, are like improv, like radar people. They're like, oh, that's part of the story. That story. Oh my god, I had this great idea. You know, very rarely do I <laughs> am I capable of going. That's the theme, and I know how to exemplify that theme perfectly. Yeah, you just go from moment to moment. For me, for me. And that is evident in the fact that I intrinsically know story, right? But we still train to to give ourselves better wheels to go on. So then when you are doing scripted work, do you find now that you, especially with the last handful of years you've been doing this specific sort of improv, do you find that you don't get as nervous anymore because you're like, What's the worst that can fucking happen? I have a script right here with my words. You hit the nail on the head. I honestly am not even nervous about improv now. Every now and then I will get a little excited or like, yeah. oh, God, I don't know what's going to happen. Like, you know, I did a Jane Austen with Impro Theater a couple of uh, weeks ago. And that was like something that if I were doing three years ago, I probably would have peed my pants. And now I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm just excited. Let's see what happens. It's a funny thing. I would experience, not stage fright, but nerves right before I would go on stage, hours before, an, an hour before. I would be nervous, especially before improv training. And then, like, when I started feeling good and, like, I had a good understanding and grasp of theater or, like, I, I consoled myself. You know, we all have imposter syndrome at any given time. And I, at a certain point, I was able to say, Jessica, you have been acting since you were 11, you have the amount of time under your belt that makes you an expert. Even if you're not good, you are just by that standard. So I was able to kind of like rest my hat on that, right? Like mm-hmm. you, at least you can act. You're, you're, you can act. Yeah. You know how to get on stage technically and do the thing. So then by the time that understanding or that level of, you know, I'm here, I have arrived and this happened with theater, all of a sudden this improv thing hit me over the head and I was completely throttled into a whole new world of like, holy shit, I'm completely out of my element, but I'm exactly where I want to be. To the point where I realized a couple years after training with improv, it was exactly what I needed to be a little bit scared again so that I could never be scared again. Yeah. So that now, like now there's nothing. I, I would also add, uh, antidepressants and therapy helped me get to <laughs> less social anxiety too. Because yes. a lot of the fear that I was experiencing is social anxiety more than I more than stage fright, more than like fear of performance. I'm I need to win that audience over. I'm really worried about what they think. 
And the less I'm worried about that, the more I'm actually doing a really great job. I was, there was a point in my improv where like, I was getting my sea legs and everything was feeling really good. And I was funny. And then we have this like practice called the second circle and it's Patsy Rodenberg theory on, um, there are first circle and third circle and second circle people. First circle people are like the people that are wallflowers that hang out in the party by the wall and like too nervous to talk. Or, hey, how are you? Or like the shy or whatever. Third circle people are like, you know, Wolf of Wall Street, like a, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio overcompensation takes all the air out of the room. Both of those are survival mechanisms. In order to be a really good improviser, you want to be in what's called second circle, which is the equal state of giving and receiving. I'm giving mm -hmm. you energy. I'm receiving your energy. Oh, your energy is a little bit interesting. How do I compensate? How do I support you? Um, so I'd be in second circle. I'd be doing like a really fun job. I'm like excited. I'm, I'm in. I'm in the show. I'm having a good time. And then the audience would laugh, and I'd be completely throttled out of second circle, because I was so excited that I got a laugh, that it would distract me, which is fine and whatever. It's improv. Who cares? But for me, that was counterintuitive to the point. So that became something that I needed to focus on. How do I stay in my seat, and how do I stay on my feet and and do the job? So. Let's put it this way. Not everything I say and do and act and improvise or whatever lands. Not It just can't. But mm -hmm. I don't give a flying fuck. I go on stage. I do the damn thing. I honor my hits and my partner's hits. I listen and I have a great time. And, and of course, 2% of my brain is going, make sure the audience is enjoying it. Okay, cool. Keep on going. Or that's a weird topic. Let's move on. I have just brought up two memories. I had when I was taking improv in college. I had a friend who was, you know, very very good at it. It was you know very natural. Intimidatingly at doing it. so. No, not intimidatingly okay, okay, okay. so. Okay, but okay, okay. I I remember I would ask because this was right at the beginning of me wanting to like pursue uh, an acting career at, at all, and I I remember every time we would finish a class, and this was me not picking up on social cues. Uh, yay ADHD. Uh, and, and, and I was like, um, I would ask him after class every day, did I do good? How was I? And he oh goes, my goodness. You're, you're fine. And, 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 then, and then, and then eventually I was like, you're I should fine. probably, but not in a way that sounded like condescending. Like he was like being friendly. And I, yeah, and yeah, I, yeah. and then I said, I probably should stop asking that. And he goes, yeah. Wow. Why did you, how did you come to that conclusion? Because I, I realized I was thinking too much about it. Hello. That's, yeah. that's it. Exactly. Right. Yeah. I had an issue of, of which has with training has died down quite a bit, but of, of being in my head. And I, I remember I had a, a, a class where the teacher was like, I can hear you thinking. I can hear, hear you thinking. Wow. And he literally, he literally taught a class called voiceover, voice acting, how to get out of your own head. Amazing. Amazing. And, right. Yeah. It's, it's a whole. First of all, um, Paul Hungerford says your brain is an asshole and a liar. <laughs> I think it's Paul Hungerford that says that. Boy. And it's the and the and the worst meanest voice is the loudest one too. Yeah, I thought I was really bad at improvising. I, I knew it wasn't, but I still was looking for validation. I still thought I needed to hit this like echelon of someone going, mm -hmm. and that makes you the good improviser. And I remember having a conversation with a friend, Nick Clark, who is just the brilliant, fastest improviser, wittiest dude you're ever gonna see, and. Uh, we're all having a beer, which like you do after a show or whatever. And I'm like, God, my brain is so slow. I, I, I just can't come up with a good idea. He goes, no, Jessica, your problem is that you come up with three and you throw them all away and then choose the fourth one. And he was so right. He, I relate to that too much. 
Well, dude, he he unlocked. He gave me first of all the permission to like stop choosing three different better choices, mm-hmm. and without realizing it, validated that I had I had good ideas that I just needed to trust that the first one was going to be okay. The counterintuitive thought of that part of our training at Impro was to not really use your first choice, which is usually like shit, pissed, fart, cock, you know, yeah. all like the bad words, like how to not go blue. And a lot of my humor is blue. I was raised Italian, you know, we were like, blah, 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 blah. And so we were saying all the bad words. So I always thought it was just funny to do that. Yeah. So don't use that if that's your first thought, but use your second thought that's not a, a bad word or sex related or something yeah. like that. So huge moment for me. And then on a, a full circle thing, I don't know, this is maybe about two or three months ago, my friends were all playing uh, Monster Prom. And there's okay. a there's a there's a second one where you're at a camp and you know they they were playing online and they were not all of its voice so they were reading the dialogue and I came in like halfway through because I was playing playing D and D with some other friends and I I hop on and they're like my friends like hey Wes do you want to read this character and I'm like sure and it was like this old woman like it was the it was essentially the Baba Yaga and I start oh doing, yeah and I was like oh this will be fun I can do these sort of voices and I was like hello and I started <laughs> playing this like Baba Yaga character and then I we finish. And then my my friend Aaron goes, Wesley. Sometimes I forget that you're an actor, like because he because he hadn't heard me like perform anything probably in a long time. Like sure. and, I, and I talk to them constantly and we hang out constantly. We play RPGs. But uh, he was like, it's I I forget that you're you're good at that. That is so. And how did that feel? It felt good. I was like I, I was <laughs> like I was like, oh thank thank you. How much did you go into doing the voice going, I want to impress my friends or just going? Not at all. No, I saw the character. I saw the character. I was like, ooh, that looks fun. Yeah, exactly. Totally. I'm at the point now where maybe to the detriment of the quality of my work, probably not, though. I I, like when I record Sci-Fi 5 for the Roddenberry Podcast Network, I usually just do it in one take. I, I don't even look at it before I read it. I... Now, the only time I'll go back and, like, obviously reread a couple sentences is if, like, I can't. Like, last night, I could not say. I was recording, and I couldn't say nuclear. Nuclear? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nuclear is what I was kept on saying. And it's just not. It doesn't. That's not the right word. Is nuclear. And yeah. if you're, like, you're, if you're talking to somebody, you say, oh, do you, that's a nuclear family or whatever. No one's going get, to get off my ass. But if you're doing a voiceover, you've got to say nuclear. That's how you say the damn word. So when that take happened and i went oh i'm saying that well then you like reread it and yeah uh there's very little prep that goes into it for me now and maybe with an audition i might take a couple sentences and go oh that's going to be tricky that's two t's next to each other or whatever but very rarely now because i don't know if we had already talked about this yet or if we didn't but like the training right the training goes into our actor tool belt like someone Mm -hmm. has this opinion for how you can uh, access a character. Someone has another opinion for how you can get out of your head. Another person has advice as to how to save yourself if you forget a line on stage. All these things. For me, all the training that I have done has coagulated into Jessica's style. Yeah. That just wings it and is in, like ingrained now. Like, and I could probably teach somebody it. Uh, as I direct people in heartbeats, I will explain something how I think I'll understand it. But then I, I really I start going, does that make sense with people? Because every, everyone's brain does work a little bit mm-hmm. differently. And as a teacher and a director, your your job is to translate your vision so that everyone understands it. Yeah. Uh, I had a teacher, a voice acting teacher named, uh, who, who, who you'll know if you've, if you've watched a ton of cartoons, uh, Richard Horowitz. He was, he was in Vader Zim. 
Okay. Which I never watched that show. Or, or uh, he was one of the beavers in Two Angry Beavers. Well, there we go. Oh, yeah. So I, I listened to some of his reels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So he te- teaches his class. And, and one of the things he teaches is when you know why you say what you say and informs you and allows you to play. But the other thing that he would say is the best directors you're going to have in terms of directors are the directors that talk story with you. Because if they say, I want you to read it like this or give you a line reading, which, you know, in some cases is fine. But in other cases, if they're if they talk story to you so that you understand what what's being said in this moment, as opposed to being like very technical, you're you're in very good hands in terms of having a director. Yeah, I think you're right. I think also the job of an actor is how to realize they've been given a line reading and they're not being directed. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So like make it seem like they're being directed well. Like, oh, yes, you're told. And I will say this. As someone who did voiceover for a major company for two years, sometimes I'm like, hey, give me the fucking line. I don't know. T- tell yeah. me how it's supposed to be sound. Sometimes, even though I'm a great director, as an actor with a script in front of me, I, sometimes I can't hear it. And this was this is usually in the past. Uh, I, would, I wouldn't be able to hear the sound or, like, what is the sentence actually saying? I'm sure that story element would have been helpful like why am i saying this i'm sure that would have been helpful yeah. to use a little extra discerning eye but every now and then it is cool to get a line reading but i but you're right that you can always smell out the director that's like hey so you right now you're feeling like blah blah, blah and you, this person just did that how does it make it feel you know it's, I, it's, and it's not rare but it's a it's not often I, I had a friend who told me he got um he had this director for a show he was working on and the this is how the director would ask for emotion. He go, uh, five uh, percent more sad, twenty uh, percent happy, like that's. Oh. And my friend was my friend who was a very very good actor was like, oh, okay, okay, and just sort of directed himself sort of. And I was like, I don't know if I hate it or love it. I honestly don't because it depends. I might say that, but as like a like as encouragement, it's like okay, cool, you're so close. I just need like five more percent, like just. Like, you know, that's like all in delivery. I will yeah. say this. Here's my here's my nightmare voiceover story. And again, it was for a brand, which, don't get me wrong, has a vibe and a thing. And they really liked my, like, uh, off-the-cuff witty, like, smarter than thou, but not really, li- like, lording it kind of sound. Whatever. Uh-huh. I was working with a, a director I hadn't worked with before. And it had been already a year or so into this campaign. And he he wasn't getting what he wanted and in order to get what he wanted, and by by the way, we were all remote, so I was in a studio in Los Angeles, and they were in a studio in the Midwest. And he goes, uh, Jessica, can you see the engineer from outside uh, of your window? I was like, Yeah. He goes, Talk to him, Jessica. And and uh, like, <laughs> so condescending. So, so condescending. And don't get me wrong, if I was actually doing ass work. He might have had to have done that. I, he even said, like, Jessica, do a Shakespeare accent. Now do a cowboy. I'm like, why? He, goes, he wanted to shake you out of it. Yeah. Fuck you, dude. And I have never been <laughs> more upset. But at the same time, my job as an actor is to act like that's okay, too, which sucks. I will say, I shouldn't I shouldn't know this story, but I do. You know George Feeney, the guy who does the voice of um, Knight Rider, the, uh, the car? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't know that guy's name. I should. I happened to be at the studio while he was recording for, uh, he was going to be doing that voice for a commercial. That's all I'll say. And he was being directed remotely. And 
the line was like, it's it's the way of the future. No, that's, that's uh, Howard Hughes. Uh, it's the future, Michael, is the line for the commercial. And he's talking to Michael as the car. So this director, this director, like this Kiwi or Australian director, he goes, okay, so you say it like, you say it like, it's the way of the, it's, it's the future, Michael. <laughs> like he just gave him a line reading and George Feeney goes, excuse me, are you telling me how to say this line? I originated this role. <laughs> he was like, it was just such a fucking badass mic drop moment. And like even the, the studio <laughs> engineers who I was good friends with, we all went, and he goes, honestly, Jessica, that's the coolest thing I've ever seen. And I've done a lot of things. It was incredible. And also a little bit of ego, obviously, on his part. He uh, And you know what? The worst William part Daniels, is, by the thank way. you. He had already given that take. And just the Kiwi director just wanted to be like, let me tell you how you do it, William. William, you're doing a great job. It's That's the future, Michael. I'm trying. I'm not really great at, at Australian. Nor am I. On a... On a shift, but still talking about story here, what has been media that you've consumed over the last maybe 10 or 15 years that you've seen that has had a behind it in front of the camera that has had like a, a positive like reaction from you or you feel is a, are, are good steps forward? Well, I mean, anyone was, is going to say TV right now, because if you're if you're getting that broad swath of a, of a time frame 10 or 15 years ago reality tv was taking over maybe 20 years ago but like everyone was like it's the era of reality and every the tv is dead and then what ended up happening as we both know is the adverse effect created a lot of like amazing tv to the point where it's like too much to watch like mm -hmm. tv is the medium now if you rewind even almost 25 years 30 years ago you were looked down upon as a tv actor yeah. You, you would never be on film if you were a TV actor. No one would and, deign to do that. Well, yeah. I mean, it's just it's just not. And if you did a commercials, goodbye. You're not even invited to the party. So it's like, obviously, those lines are just completely non-existent. So not surprisingly, there's a reason my medical drama is so closely modeled after Grey's Anatomy. Because I, I think Shonda Rhimes and Shonda Land are at the top of the heap for inclusion for storytelling for using their voice appropriately they, they you know it's activism and it's subversive and it's just damn good storytelling so no wonder Grey's Anatomy I say what you will have your opinions about that show it's still it talks about the things that are hard and what our society is going through and manages to get out so many different stories about so many different people and not just white people and not just white men you know which are fine. Go yeah. tell your stories. It's, you know, you're always going to get a job. It's not, a, I don't, I don't hate those people. I am a white woman. You know what I mean? But as far as like, they, they normalized, she has normalized TV making. It, and is, that's a huge example for me. Is there something uh, in like the last maybe five years, like or show that like really sideswiped you out of nowhere in terms of like how well it did all those things you were just talking about? I mean, Let's look at Bridgerton as an example. I, I don't know that I'm trying to think of like what's bowled me over because also like I love Letterkenny, right? And it's completely it has no representation like whatsoever, but it's a great TV show. And I, that bowled me over. I was like, this, this, I was impressed with like this very cinematic stylized storytelling. That's just amazing, right? Mm -hmm. But if you look at Bridgerton as an example, you are they're They're telling a story about Regency era. It's different than the Jane Austen 
storytelling because it's actually taking place in London with the upper elite crest, da 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 da. So it's like obviously even more scandalous. But they're not adhering to the societal norms where everyone was white. Because yeah. why not? We're in 2021. Who gives a flying fuck? Let's just cast the best person for the right role and let's have some fun with it. Let's see all the actors that we could potentially see here and have a great time. Mm -hmm. And it's obviously a successful model, in my opinion. I, and I think it, it's edu It's not only encouraging, it's educational for me. It's, um, it's mind opening and it shouldn't be, it shouldn't be, but that's what the world we're in is that shouldn't, that should be the norm. It's not, we're getting there. And she yeah. has always exemplified that. Like uh, just ahead of the curve. The two shows that really hit me in the last couple of years are Watchmen and Lovecraft Country. Oh, I haven't watched Lovecraft Country, though. I like that lead actress, and she also has a fun stint in Grey's Anatomy. I was like, oh, my God. Like, so many people have had, like, their yeah. one episode in Grey's Anatomy. I think, now that you're mentioning it, Watchmen probably will go down in history as the best television series of all time. Because it's right. It's like, that's it. It's just the slowest burn the mm -hmm. most like seamless plot, but also like talks about something that is probably true, which it does in a not bold face way, but a bold face way that more than likely the Ku Klux Klan and white supremacists have infiltrated our not only like lower ranking officers, but higher ranking officers, yeah. you know, and but still fictionalizes it enough so that we can all kind of go, what? It's like mind blowing, dude, mind. Right. And it, and, it, and it came out at such a weirdly perfect time for the following year that we had after that, because it you know came out right at the end of 2019. I think the last episode was in December of 2019. But that goes to show how, like, they can't plan that. But at the same no. time, that just goes to show how important, how we actually needed that story probably 10 years ago. We probably needed that story. The fact that we all learned that that riot is an actual riot. Yeah through that TV show is a disgrace. That's a disgrace. But, and that's what I mean, it's like, they yes, they hit this like zeitgeist totally perfectly. They, they totally lucked out, but that, that we needed to know this shit 10 years ago. We need, you know, crazy. We were talking about earlier like that sh shows that sort of affected us this year. Like I talk about those shows being ones that affected me, but then I think about the the thing that I always go back to in my comfort food, which is, is cartoons. And there, I think there was like, three cartoons that I watched this year or that I finished also finished this year this past year that I remember like just really hitting me one of them was uh, the new She-Ra show okay yeah I didn't watch uh, it but I heard everyone loved oh, it so good <laughs> like we're talking about like you know they're not really writing this for for kids even though it's a kid show sure totally like everything's structured and cool in a cool fun way uh, then an another one which is also for another younger audience which was Owl House Oh, I'm not even familiar with that. Some of the same people who did some stuff on Shira, but it's like imagine it's sort of like self-aware Harry Potter in a way. Okay. In the sense, okay. it it takes it serious. It's very earnest, but there's a lot of like darkness and depth in in the characters. Um, Fun. But you're saying it's for kids though. Ultimately. It's for kids. It's for kids. Okay. It's on it's on Disney Plus. It's great. Oh, okay, cool. Oh, and I finally this year uh, finished uh, Steven Universe, and oh, that yeah. was amazing. I mean I was going to bring it up if you didn't. I mean, <laughs> also, what a great example of like, let's just tell a goddamn story and make women the lead. <laughs> like, it's like, it's just so good. And man, I wish I was a kid that was ingesting that kind of mm -hmm. TV show. But I'm also 
honored as an adult to watch that show. I, I went into Steven Universe um, expecting a, Adventure Time, which was a mistake. Yeah, just had some of the same creative. That was about it. Which I understand, right? Yeah. Like, obviously, it's going to be different. And I knew people that really liked Steven Universe. I just wasn't prepared mentally for narrative that followed from episode to episode. But by the mm -hmm. second I dropped in, like, past episode two, I was like, um, I'm sorry. This is, like, I don't know in my heart if it supersedes Adventure Time for, like, its dearness and nearness. Because I love that Pendleton Ward just had these, like, crazy characters and then ends up forming the story as they went along yeah. and, the, and it still is like still feels like this like thing you piece together in this world I, I love that when you realize they're in a post-apocalyptic world it's like all of a sudden this whole dark cloud gets put over everything it's fascinating to me and then you have like steven universe that exemplifies like strong women and layered women and an, an emotional kid boy who's allowed to be emotional and allowed to show love and uh, like it's huge it's just huge um, I also allowed myself to get into Rick and Morty last year. Yeah. At first, I thought it was too disgusting, but I really, I'm a real fan I, of it now. I, I, I was going to say, I feel like that would be up your alley. Uh, okay. All right. All right. There's some misunderstandings about my personality. Um, <laughs> I definitely, as a performer, am a chaotic neutral. And I, I would blame Hyper RPG for bringing that out in me. I don't blame them, but like I dropped into Hyper RPG on one of their hyperthons or whatever, you know, like their fundraiser Saturdays. And then I just thought that that's how all the RPGs should be done is like, like trolley or like the heel. And it was awesome because it also helped me explore like that side of my personality that was maybe afraid of upsetting people or being a little awkward or it just kind of helped me like hit the pedal to the metal on that side of my personality. But yeah, I don't know how much I love like raunchy or... Because that show is raunchy but then it does those things where it just punches you in the fucking gut. Like there's, I think, there, I can't remember. The which Unity I, episode, right? That's the one. The with, one where Rick is dating the plant, the, the, the entity. Plant, that, uh, from the plant, yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that the one where he Spoiler? goes home and tries to kill himself? Yes. Yeah, that's what I was, I was thinking. With that song? Can you feel it? What? That is like ins insane storytelling on, yeah. a, on a, you know, and. Dan Harmon is not a perfect person, but what I love about Dan Harmon is his ability to like learn and grow yeah. and admit his his shortcomings. Because like Community, which is wonderful, doesn't really stand up the test of time, really, because it seems like a bunch of people making racist jokes for the sake of racism. You know what I mean? Like, oh look, we're making fun of racism, and here we go, and oh sexism. But it's still brilliant. But it was of an era, right? And then mm -hmm. we fast forward. And he's refined that storytelling to actually not be, but offensive, but not, right? Like a Ricky Gervais, who's also not perfect. Mm -hmm. We we need these storytellers that push us past the envelope a little bit. That's, I, at least that's my controversial opinion. So th this is a good transition for this then. In opposition to the last question I asked, what are still some things in media or the industry behind and in front of the camera that still need to be worked on, still need... Uh, attention and are not getting enough or not at all oh goodness well I'm certainly not the authority on this as especially as someone who is growing and learning myself I think in general especially in this business the the loudest the squeakiest wheel shouldn't always get the oil I think we need to get better at allowing for different voices to be heard giving opportunities for different voices to be heard 
Um, as strangely, a really great example of taking a knee and going, this is not my, this is not my realm, is Chuck Lorre with uh, Bob Hart's Abishola. Most of the Ripley's and I went to Sundance last year and we watched a panel that included one of the writers and the lead actress from Bob Hart's Abishola. And the writer is a Nigerian comedian. And she tells a story about how Chuck Lorre goes to Nigeria, falls in love with the culture, comes back wanting to write a sitcom about it. Quickly realizes that as a white man, that's not his fully, that's not fully his job. He's writing, he's going to write the Bob part. You know what I mean? Bob falls in love with Ibi Shola, but realizes that he needed authenticity and needed to be inclusionary. So he searched. This is what I loved about this is basically her point was like, make sure you're searchable. He searched Nigerian comedian and she pops up. And at first she was just a consultant and then she turned into a writer and then two more Nigerian writers ends up joining the cast. And from all accounts, that show is very authentic and loving of that culture that hasn't been exemplified in American media, right? Mm -hmm. I don't know. Point me to any other network TV show that has an African country centered in it. You know what I mean? It just mm -hmm. doesn't happen. But it's, it's a good example of using your privilege to give opportunity to go i'm not the one for this but i know who can or let me seek that or let me lift that person up and again that's improv that's what ripley does that's what i'm learning to do is i have this opportunity or i have this idea it's not perfectly right for me but i can help you get that idea off the ground oh i need to take a back seat great see you later let me know if i can support you uh and that's just and that's just for everybody uh, i love it I personally love it when people come to me and go, I have this idea, Jessica, and I think you're going to be the person I want to make it with. Nothing excites me more. Like co collaboration, I guess. I, and I can't say, I'm not behind the scenes enough in Hollywood to know that there is collaboration or there isn't. So I can't say that they need to do more of it, but I will say it's it probably is what harbors more success and great, better stories. And there's probably an element of me where I should, there's probably like truth in saying like, hey, let's fucking stop with all of the reboots. But at the same time, that reboot isn't for us. Our, our Ninja Turtles was in the 90s and the 80s and the Ninja Turtles for the kids today is what it's gonna be. And you can't begrudge studio execs and TV studios trying to like take this story that's really resonated before and try to make it work for the next generation because isn't that ultimately what all storytelling is doing is taking like we're not <laughs> because it wasn't recorded we can't take the stories that we shared around a campfire from millennia ago and go well that's the end all be all i will say though they're wrong for trying to do anything different with Willy Wonka. It's a mistake. Oh my god. Mistake. Did you did you hear who the who the two yes. people they want to cast? I just can't for? I can't even. <laughs> and you know what's interesting? Uh, I woke up this morning. I like Timothy Chalamet. I really yeah. do. He's pretty. And I love Tom Holland. He's pretty. And I'm too old to say this. They're like babies. But they're so cute. And I just love them. But don't, don't go anywhere near my film. You know what I mean? Like, don't. But I was thinking about Dune. And um, Dune, in my humble opinion, is wonderful storytelling, too. And yeah. I, I'm named after the character Jessica. I love telling people that. It's my favorite thing to tell people. And I do... We, me and Scott Rubin read on my Twitch channel, Dune on Tuesdays, and we're up to Children of Dune, which is my third read through now. So anyway, I wake up thinking about like, oh, I wonder if they'll get to Children of Dune. I wonder if Del Dennis Villanueva will get that far. I wonder if it'll be that successful. Uh, I also have to just put my 
flag in the ground and say that Jason Momoa is a horrible choice for Duncan, but that's really neither a horrible choice. Ah. Um, completely can't act it. In fact, Oscar Isaac should have been Duncan, even though he's going to be a wonderful Duke Leto. Oh, uh, anyway, that. that beard. I know, <laughs> I know, dude. He should have been Duncan. Anyway, anyway, neither here nor there. I woke up wondering if Dennis made a mistake in casting people with notoriety because we can't fall in love with them in the same way. Like in the same way, like how that, that like the model that Star Wars followed, right? We mm-hmm. didn't know those three actors and then now we love them. And then they did the same exact thing with The Last Jedi, right? Ray, we never heard of. Oscar Isaac, we, we didn't really know. And uh, John Bodega, we didn't know. And we got to learn and love them through experiencing their story. So I had a feeling today that I wonder if he was doing himself a disservice by not following that model. Because Kyle MacLachlan wasn't well known at the time when... Also uh, does not look 15. I mean, who gives a flying fuck? Because <laughs> he's pretty darn cute. Because you know what, though? They can get away with it because Paul rapidly matures. Yeah. He, he matures overnight. Also, point me to a fifteen-year-old actor that can act. You know, at a, like do that role. I don't know. I mean, Timothy did. Chalamet does look fifteen, even though he's like twenty-five. I don't know, dude. He's that's what I mean. He's just like a, he's a baby, but like he's so cute, so cute, so 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 cute. Such a perfect fuck, fuck boy. God, love him. <laughs> love him. I was gonna say that just to go back, sort of to our last subject for a second. I was thinking of like of like two examples of like people who in power who actually like give those opportunities to people and the one that popped into my head that i remember hearing somewhat recently was that bandit cumberbatch refuses to be in a movie with a fe- uh, with a female co-star unless she is paid the same as he is love that and then that taika waititi hires the most diverse like crew like he always makes sure that it's a a diverse crew behind the scenes and in front of the camera as well he has like the biggest number of that being the case in all of his movies if people have that ability to do it i think that will set a new uh, precedent for yeah it's just getting out of getting the old habits out of the way to make new ones to be open and letting someone surprise you right you have to check your own biases you have to you're not and we're not perfect no one's perfect but if someone tells you hey take a look at that and you're still gonna do that thing that's wrong or like probably isn't good then you're the asshole but it's unfortunate that Benedict has to fight for that. It's unfortunate yeah. that we have to talk about it. Like, look at how great Taika is doing. But that's you got to start somewhere. And, so. and and then you also brought it up. Uh, Dan Harmon is, like, the best example people point to of, like, how to apologize and own up to the shit that you've done. Because whenever someone talks about that, even the person who accused him of, of those things has said, like, if anyone's ever going to, like, apologize, this is sincere and the right way to do it, not the... Well, I wasn't aware. I didn't know. No one, maybe except what's his face from Parks and Rec, who got accused from that date. Um, oh, Aziz and sorry. His apology was like kind of good. No one else has taken accountability in in order with regards to anything that they were accused of. And don't get me wrong, we need to get to a place where there are levels, right? <laughs> like mm-hmm. Dan Harmon abused his power. Mm-hmm. but didn't sexually harass her physically, right? So that's different. Yeah. Obviously traumatic and a problem. Yeah. But someone can learn from that. Someone sexually assaults somebody, there's a bigger question as to deviousness, right? Yeah. But we need to be able, like, we need to allow people in the public eye 
to fuck up and learn. And we, we also need to be better as the public for holding people accountable. And instead when Chris Harvick goes, this is not bullshit, like fuck you, dude. Like she also didn't name you. <laughs> like, like anyway, it's just, there's so many different examples as opposed to that one. It's also on the fall of publicists going, don't admit to it, don't admit to it. You're publicly, you're liable, you're gonna lose. The fact that Army Hammer had to step down oh, from God. his job, that's crazy. I don't get me wrong. That's like some, sh- sh- I'm not interested. Yeah. But that's like just someone who does it differently with a consenting adult. I mean, if it had come out that there were bodies, sure. <laughs> we're just talking about something different then. Yeah. But that, yeah. that looked like a consensual conversation. Yeah. And why is he losing his job over that? Because we're friggin' prudes. Anyway, uh, we just need to be able to go, hey, not perfect. How yeah. Do- I don't know. We hold to look. I have all these different varying opinions. At the end of the day, I just want to be around humans that are willing to learn, aren't perfect, but like really try, really try their darndest, yeah. and are just goddamn kind. Because different kind is different than nice. It really is, and it takes some time to understand the difference between that. And I want kind people, and I want honest people in my life. And even you know, in two years, someone could dr- like look at this podcast and go, "I can't believe Jessica said that." And they'll use this great soundbite, and I'll sound like an asshole. And if I'm wrong, I'm going to go, cool, I didn't know that at the time, motherfucker. <laughs> you know what I yeah. mean? Like, we need to be able to allow growth. Yeah. That's my that's my soapbox for the day. So to bring it in for a landing, is there anything that you want to promote or, or plug uh, or where people can find you if they so choose to follow you online? Yeah, I'm really excited. Uh, Heartbeats is coming back for the second half of season one. We ended on a huge cliffhanger where the audience voted for uh, an earthquake to hit the hospital. And one of our doctors, Dr. Cameron Fuller, played by Roberto T. Lewis, has been, um, I guess you can't say mortally wounded because that means he's going to die, but he is is within the, the, he could die. (laughs) <laughs> and we won't know what's going to happen to him. And that the show comes back on February 5th, and we'll come back for eight episodes. And that is on twitch.tv slash Ripley Improv. And we have awesome guests like Edie Patterson from The Righteous Gemstones. We have Magena Tova, who's uh, from The Magicians. She's the librarian in The Magicians. We just have like a – it's just like really – couldn't be more proud of it. And yeah, you should definitely subscribe to the Sci-Fi 5. I'm one of, I believe, five contributors to that podcast. And it's a weekly, like Monday through Friday. And once a, every day, we'll give you the history of sci-fi stuff that happened on that day. And if people are so inclined to watch people play video games, you can check me out at twitch.tv slash Jessica Nerdy. And then you're on, are you on Twitter and Instagram and all those? Oh, yeah. Places? Jessica Verdi on Instagram, Verdi with an I, and Jessica Lynn Verdi with an I also on Instagram. Well, by, by the time this episode comes out, which will be a, a week after the 5th, people will uh, be able to go watch that Heartbeats thing. Yeah, they can, you know, all this stuff lives on, on VODs on Twitch or mm-hmm. on our YouTube. Um, and if you have any question about that, you can go to ripleyimprov.com and something will show you something. You'll figure it out. Well, that's going to do it for this week. Thank you so much for, for being on the show, Jessica. You know what? Um, thank you for having me. No, thank thank you. No. Thank you. Uh, okay. Um, Can you hear my stomach? It's hung. It's hungry. Okay. I think there's I think good, there's a good rumbly. Uh, that's gonna do it for this week, folks. See you next Bye. time. Bye. <laughs> this has been Lost in the Story with your host Wesley Marshall. Music composed by Chase Pathia. 
who you can follow on Twitter and TikTok at Chase Bathia and on Instagram at GamerComposer. His website is ChaseBathia.com. Cover art for this podcast provided by Marcy Edwards, who you can follow on social media on Twitter and Instagram at Mary Hellscream. Thank you for listening. See you next time.